Luke chapter 9, please. Luke chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at this passage uh, somewhat that we um, read this morning in the Scripture reading, but I want to point out a couple of things to you before we get started with this and notice the flow of things in the passage here. The first uh, is back in the 18, verses 18 to 20 here where Jesus asked them about who that uh, the crowds were saying that he was, and they were offering various ideas. John the Baptist, uh, Herod had taken that understanding, uh, and, and fearfully because he'd put John to death. Now he says, John's alive again. What is he going to do? Is he going to seek retaliation on me? I think that's probably what was in his mind. But to uh, John the Baptist, others said Elijah, which was promised to come in uh, uh, the last uh, verses of, of the book of Malachi. And, or another prophet that had raised from the dead. But then Jesus turned to, to them and said, Who do you say that I am? And Peter confessed, You are the Christ. You are the Christ. Now, if you'll notice... Immediately, then Jesus foretells his death. Now, what are they expecting? They're expecting Jesus, this Messiah, to uh, jump on his white horse, pull out his sword, destroy the Romans, take back the city of Jerusalem, and, and uh, uh, elevate David's throne again. But uh, Jesus said, no, uh, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be crucified, and then I'm going to be raised on the third day. And you need to do the same. You need to take up your cross daily and follow me. It's going to look like defeat. But it's really victory. And following that, Luke records the transfiguration. And notice in verse 24, and I, we read that this morning, I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God in its glorious appearance. And we have that. Notice in verse 28 it says, Now about eight days, eight days later, not seven days, eight days, which is the sign of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. The Lord created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day. But now there's an eighth day of the new creation. And he took then Peter, James, and John up to this mountain and was transfigured before their, their eyes. But they, they didn't really understand this either, as we will see from the message. And then after that, as they come down, we see how powerless the disciples are in Jesus' absence when this man brings a demon-possessed son to them and wants to... Wants to see that demon t taken out and his son restored. They were unable. Oh, Jesus called them a faithless and twisted generation. And then he again foretells his death in verses 43 to, to 45. I'm going to be delivered. Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered but they didn't understand it. In fact, notice in verse 46, it says, 
an argument arose among them as to which of them was greatest. Matthew says greatest in the kingdom. See, they still couldn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. And that brings us to this, the glory of the kingdom. Three times, uh, or three themes, I should say, three themes shine through the events that are cited here by Luke concerning the life of Christ and his ministry. In the various events here that are recorded, these themes are all intertwined. And they reveal how both the Jews, to whom he is ministering, and the disciples themselves have failed to understand the glorious truth being revealed to them in the person of Jesus. Although they marveled at the majesty of God displayed in their midst, they would ultimately reject Jesus and put him to death because he did not meet their expectations about the kingdom of God. And note again Luke 9 verses 43 and 44. All were astonished at the majesty of God as they were witnessing the miracles that Jesus was performing. But... There's that little word, but. While they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Not to elevate him, but to destroy him. <laughs> and here's the problem. These are the self-deceived descendants of Abraham who failed to understand their places taught in the Torah. And what is the Torah? The Torah is the Mosaic instruction given to them by God on Mount Sinai. When God gave it to them, he said to them, he charged them, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandments, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Although they were, they first agreed to this, all that the Lord has said we will do, they said to Moses there on Mount Sinai. They didn't. They rebelled, they disobeyed, they didn't take the Torah to heart, even when they were warned by God's prophets. And so this we see this with Moses and Elijah appearing with Jesus there on that Mount of Transfiguration. That all ties into this. But here in their rebellion, these physical descendants of Abraham developed a narcissistic mindset. They thought they were, we're God's people. We're important. We're better than everybody else. We are the people of God. Yeah. Yet, 
They rejected the scriptures, which led to a very shallow faith as revealed in an inconsistent and hypocritical lifestyle. Jesus, just read Matthew 23, where Jesus really rebukes them in their hypocrisy. Thus, we have here the Old Testament prophet Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, Malachi, conveying to then uh, them God's final warning. And we read this in Malachi chapter 3, verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. This is God speaking. I will be swift, a swift witness against the, the sorcerers, against the adulterers. Sorcerers in Israel, yeah. Against the adulterers, yeah, in Israel. Against those who swear falsely. Against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Sadly, at this point in their association with Jesus Christ, they are of the same mindset as those whom Jesus was rebuking. Therefore, Jesus came not only to bring God's judgment on the unfaithful old covenant house, but also to establish a faithful new covenant house of redeemed and sanctified people who would fear and honor God with full-hearted and faithful submission and obedience. So we read here of a new kingdom of God, a people that Peter speaks of there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, being built up a spiritual house a, to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What God expected the old covenant crowd and they failed, he says, I'm now going to produce in a new covenant people. And that's, what, that's where we are right now. Thus, we see these three themes that, that uh, appear in Luke's gospel. The first and the main theme is that Jesus, in his coming, was introducing the new kingdom of God. And back in chapter 8 there, uh, that chapter opened with, with these words, Jesus went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. That sets the stage. And then the kingdom then was introduced as having two stages. There's two stages of the kingdom. There would be first a temporal stage, which is this age. That's present age of grace between Christ's first and second comings. And then there would be a glorious age, see, which they were expecting then. But that's not going to be until Christ comes again in the second coming, the glorious stage. And this coming stage, then that glorious stage was previewed in the transfiguration. When Je as Jesus prayed, his countenance was glorified in their presence that we read of earlier here. 
Jesus spoke of this twofold aspect of the kingdom when he assured Peter, which will come later here, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because that's what Jesus expects of his followers today. We are to deny ourselves to take up our cross daily and follow him. Peter said, we, we did that, what do we get? And Jesus said, uh, I'm going to tell you, no one has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time, this present age, and in the age to come, eternal life. That's the second stage, the glorious stage. That's Luke 18, verses 30 and 31. So the transfiguration then was the preview of this glorious age to come. The second theme is, can, associates with that, and that is the identification of the king who is to rule in that kingdom. And it was answering the question raised by the crowds and the disciples alike, Who is this? that does these miracles. Nobody, no prophet, no, no preacher, no priest had ever done the things that Jesus did as he ministered to the crowds from village to village. Who is this? Luke 9 and verse 9. The Messianic Christ was to be revealed through the confirming works of miracles that provoked the question. As John said, are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus took the disciples, his, John's disciples out, performed a number of miracles, and then he said, now you go tell John what you saw. Draw, and draw the proper conclusion from that. So Jesus had specifically asked the disciples, who do the, do the crowd say that I am? And, and uh, I, as I stated before, they reiterated what they had heard, John the Baptist, or Elijah, or one of the prophets of old risen again. But then Jesus turned to them and said, Who do you say that I am? And he's making a distinction between them and his disciples. And, Matt, and uh, Peter steps forward and says, You are the Christ of God. Matthew's virgin has Jesus responding to Peter's confession with this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, Peter, you didn't come up with this on your own. My heavenly Father showed you this. My heavenly Father showed you this. This is Matthew 16, verse 17. So this confession then forms the foundation of the church, which is the expression of the kingdom of God in this age. It's the church. And Christ's relationship to the church to truly then fulfill the Lord's expectations, as stated back there in, in uh, Exodus 19, 4, 5 and 6, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Do you, do you understand that? Do you belong to Christ? Do you claim Him as your Lord and Savior? Then, if you do, you belong to a you belong in the new kingdom. You are part of the new kingdom. And if you're part of the new kingdom, then you're expected to obey His voice and keep His covenant. And because you, not for, but because you are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So then the third theme that is developed is the means to instruct and inform his followers. They're hearing the word. If you keep, you know, if you obey my voice, enabling them to obey God's will and in his kingdom. Thus, when questioned by his followers about his use of the parables, Jesus, and, and this is Luke 8, verse 10, Jesus informed them, Do you, uh, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But to others, they, they are in parables, so that seeing they may see, not see, and hearing they may not understand. Why? Why didn't Jesus want them to understand? And the reason is simply this. Because the old covenant kingdom was under judgment and was about to, to disappear from the earth. So then, that explains his admonition to his own disciples. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Has God given you ears to hear? You say, well, I've got two of them on the side of my head. He's not talking about that. He's talking about spiritual understanding, about the ability to receive spiritual truth from the word of Almighty God. He who has regenerated spiritual ears, let him hear the truth of Scripture. The reason for hearing involves understanding what is said. To you it is given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Do you know them? Are you growing in your understanding of them in this present age? This is important. Sadly, at this point the disciples were no better than the multitudes, for they too did not often understand what he was saying. As noted in verse 44, they did not understand this saying. Therefore, the disciples were tested by Jesus. And this is what we see in this passage is his testing of them. And uh, interestingly, at the table there this morning, we don't corroborate, but I'll tell you, I am just uh, uh, blown away how many times his word at the table and, and my sermon fit together. And here's where, this is where I'm, what I'm talking about. Hearing the word of God requires faith. The great faith chapter there, Hebrews 11. Faith is trusting the word of God and resting on it. 
This is the truth. I believe it. I'm going to live it. Thus Jesus tested the disciples when he asked them to take a boat over to the other side of the lake. You remember back in the 8th chapter. And Jesus was sound asleep there as the wind and the waves began to rage. And they're scared to death that they're going to be swamped and going to drown in the lake. And they wake Jesus up and they cried out, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? Or Master, literally, Master, Master, we are perishing. And as we previously noted, they're addressing Jesus here merely as their master. And Jesus was that. He said, I am your Lord and master. Master is just a superintendent. It's just a leader. Is Jesus just a leader? Is he only that? And if that's the case, what possibly could he do in that situation? No. Jesus is, was the divine Lord revealed in Psalm 107, which reads, He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. And, that, and then he brought them to their desired haven. When, Je when he woke him up, Jesus just said, Shh, be quiet. And the storm was done. And then they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? But notice what Jesus said to them at that point. He rebuked them for their lack of faith. Where is your faith? By, and what did he mean by that? When they first embarked on their journey, Jesus had plainly stated to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. Did Jesus not know there was going to be a storm that threatened them in the middle of the lake? Were they truly in danger? No. He brought them to their desired haven. And when, they, when he did so, they marveled, Who is this? That he commands even winds and water to obey him. Chapter 8, verse 25. See, but now faith requires ears that hear. That is, regenerated spirits that can perceive spiritual truth. And what becomes very clear in this response is that at this point in the kingdom, the disciples do not yet have ears to hear. And they are no different from the rest of the people who witnessed the ministry of Jesus in their midst. And this is particularly illustrated here by Peter's confession and then his confusion. In chapter 20, he confessed, you are the Christ. And remember, he didn't come up with this. The Father revealed it to him. But then, when, they, when he wakes up from sleep, and this is interesting, why is it that these disciples were always sleeping at, at inappropriate times? But they're sound asleep there, and suddenly they woke up and see Jesus in his glorified state, talking with Moses and Elijah. 
And Peter jumps up and sticks his foot in his mouth again. And said, oh, Lord, it's good. No, he didn't say Lord. He said, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tents. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke adds here, not knowing what he said. Verse 33. And now notice again. They didn't call Jesus Lord. They called him Master. See, the Father himself then corrected Peter from the overshadowing cloud as it came upon them and scared them to death. <laughs> the Lord rebuked him. This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. What does this tell us? This, the implication is this. As the Hebrew expounds that Jesus was the Divine Son, as in the book of Hebrews, compares the Son with Moses, which, who was the servant. The Son over the house can, uh, in comparison to the servant in the house. Jesus was the Divine Son in His incarnation, whom the Father set over His house via the New Covenant. So the Old Covenant, ready to vanish away, was then represented by these other two that spoke with Him. Moses, the servant through whom God gave the Old Covenant on Mount Sinai, and Elijah, the first of the major prophets, who served as a guardian of the Old Covenant, warning of the judgment due to covenant failures by the nation. So this change then of covenant and authority was, was then demonstrated back there in, verse, in chapter 7 where Jesus addressed the crowd after dismissing John. He honored John as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Indeed, John was the fulfillment of Elijah as prophesied by Malachi to come before that great day of the Lord. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. As a final Old Testament prophet, John commissioned, was commissioned uh, in a twofold way. First, he was to prepare for the coming Messiah. He was to announce him. Thus fulfill the Old Covenant and to bring it to its end. And then an ending of the Old Covenant then would also end in Israel's rebellion and covenant violation culminating in the judgment of God on the city, both city and the temple. Jesus pronounced this judgment in his lament in Matthew 23 after rebuking the scribes and the Pharisees. He said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to it. Why did they kill the prophets? Why did they stone those who were sent to it? To, that is to rebuke them. Because they didn't like their message that they were disobeying the Torah that God had given to them on Mount Sinai. So Jesus said, How often would I have gathered your children together as the hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you would not. That is the leadership. 
of the nation were not willing. So then, the pronouncement of judgment. See, your house is left unto you desolate. In the very next chapter there, 24, Matthew 24, as the disciples marveled over the beauty, beautiful temple complex, Jesus explained to them, you see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be one here stone left upon another that will not be thrown down. This beautiful temple complex that you're admiring is not going to be here long. Indeed, the judgment of God came upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70 when Titus and the Roman armies destroyed the city and the sanctuary. That brings me to the third point here, and that's the new covenant generation that is greater than John. And this is what it's all about. Note here, in his complimenting John, back in, in the seventh chapter, Jesus stated, however, that the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. John was the greatest of the old covenant prophets, but he said the least one in the new covenant is going to be greater than John. In what way? The new covenant that Jesus was instituting based on grace would enable promises of the, the promises of the Abrahamic covenant to be fulfilled particularly the one in which all nations of the earth would be blessed by this seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. The new covenant produced a new generation, a true seed of Abraham. And Paul spoke of this generation, stating in, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, If you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's offspring, regardless of whether you're Jew or Gentile. Heirs according to the promise. See, we live by the promise, not by the law. This new covenant generation, because of the grace purchased by Jesus, would be blessed with far greater spiritual advantages and privileges than John or any of the other disciples. Even the remnant that were considered as the remnant here of the old covenant. And also spoken of there in Malachi, the third chapter. This was confirmed then by those who heard John's message and repented. We read that there in verse 29 there of, of chapter 7. When they heard those who had repented at John's preaching and were baptized by John, hearing Jesus' words, declared God just. What, did they, what was that about? It's, they, they understood that he was right in his dealings with this rebellious Old Covenant generation. Then that is contrasted there with the Pharisees and the lawyers of the Old Covenant generation who rejected God's purpose for themselves. Verse 30. What about you? Are you one who accepts or rejects God's purpose for yourself? So seeing this rejection, Jesus then narrowed his message and directed it to those, the scribes and the Pharisees specifically. To what then shall I compare the people of this old covenant generation? And what are they like? Jesus understood 
that the current generation would ultimately demand his crucifixion as predicted twice in our text here, verses 18 through 20 and then 43 through 45. The word generation, Luke uses this term here, generation, is the root word from which we get our English word genealogy. We have a couple of folks in here that belong to the Priors County Genealogical Society, like tracing their ancestry, who, who, uh, who their family is. See, it involves family relationships. Who do you descend from, and who descends from you? And Jesus used this very term in Luke nine forty one when he confronted even the disciples for their lack of faith, resulting in their ability, inability to cast out this demon from the young child there brought by his distraught father for help. Jesus said, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. The word twisted there means distorted. They had distorted opinions of God and how God works. Because the Holy Spirit has not yet come into their, into their lives to help them and lead them in the truth of the Word of God. They're just like all the rest of the folks that were around them. The nation of Israel was indeed a faithless and twisted generation of which the disciples then were also tied by their DNA. But God was going to do a transforming work through the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ that nothing in the Old Testament Scriptures could compare. He would make a people who would be truly a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Yes. So then following Peter's confession there in verse 20, Jesus cautioned the twelve that their expectations of the kingdom were also twisted and distorted. They were not listening to Jesus when he revealed that he must first suffer rejection and be killed. When he repeated this in verse 44, he added, let these words sink into your ears. However, they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. Now, in closing, I'm going to emphasize here what that what's involved here. Comparing these two passages, the, the first his first announcement of crucifixion and his second announcement of crucifixion in the same text here. In the first revelation of his sufferings, it was introduced by a command: "Don't tell anyone else." We would ask, well, why did he do that? Why did he tell them that not to tell anybody? And I believe the reason is because of their misunderstanding of what the kingdom was all about, they would likely join, either join or provoke other, others in a messianic revolution. You say, oh, that's, that couldn't happen. I want to tell you that it did, right? Remember when he fed the 5,000? John tells us in John 6.15 that afterwards 
the, the people, they're already chafing under the dominion of Rome and ready to be out from under it. When the feeding of the 5,000 occurred, they were ready to take Jesus by force and make Him a king. And He escaped from their presence. So that brings us to this. This first revelation of His suffering then was followed by a preview of the glory of the new kingdom the glorification, that second stage. And it says, When He, the Son of Man, comes in His glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels, there He's mentioned that in verse 26, and then He, he was transformed or transfigured there on that mountain. But it's interesting that after that second revelation, Luke states that they still didn't understand. But it was hidden from them. Why? Because they're not ready for it yet. They're not yet ready for it. But you are. We're on this side of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension. He is now seated at the right hand of, the ma of majesty. He rules and reigns. And He sent forth His Holy Spirit. And you, if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit lives in you. And He's given you by Jesus Christ to lead you into all truth. But at that point, notice in verse 46, then that uh, uh, they didn't understand it. They even argued. Who would be the greatest in that kingdom? Ah, we don't want to go back there. We're, we're now on this side of Pentecost. And at that point, the, the understanding then was fully enlightened. And their place in the, in the new covenant dispensation was clearly displayed. So do you belong to a faithless and twisted generation, or do you belong to a generation of promise? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Isn't that a tremendous truth? Listen to that again. For in Christ, are you in Christ? If you are, then you are a son of God through faith. Amen. Galatians 3.26 Father, thank you for your word. We praise you and thank you for the opportunity of considering this truth this morning. That there, the kingdom of God is here and it's in conflict with the kingdom of this world. And we are then called upon to be soldiers of this new kingdom and to stand firm and to present the truth, which will probably not be understood by most that are around us. And like Jesus, we will be rejected as well. But Father, we know that in this age, you are calling out a people for your name, out of every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation, 
and gathering them together into this one glorious kingdom that will be then that will be fully inaugurated and glorified in your second coming even so come lord jesus and we praise you in his name amen <laughs>